Want to do better? Then it's time to change the story. Welcome to our show about new visions currently transforming the world through the confluence of art, tech, and innovation. And now your hosts, Michael Ashley and Neil Sahota. Hey, welcome to another episode. Our guest today is Fred Warner with the ITU, International Telecommunications Union, which is a UN specialized agency, and he's the head of strategic engagements. Welcome, Fred. Nice to be here, Neil. Thank you for having me. So, Fred, we like to kick off every call with this question. As a visionary, what is the story that you want to bring to the world? We have about 10 years between now and 2030 to achieve the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And um, those are pretty ambitious goals. Uh, everything, you know, addressing things like zero hunger or clean air or uh, education for all or gender equality, uh, infrastructure. So um, a set of ambitious targets uh, agreed upon by close to 200 countries. And um, 10 years isn't a long time. And with a lot of people I've been talking to, they see that AI holds great promise to advance many of these goals or make or at least make progress towards these goals. And um, the, what I would like to see is a lot of different voices coming to the table, uh, working on AI as a you know, high potential technology solution, and then helping to move the needle a little bit between now and 2030. And if, if you look at the, the timeline, any practical applications of AI that we identify today that could be impactful towards the uh, SDGs, you know, it might take two or three years to identify these solutions. It might take another two or three years to, to develop and implement these solutions. And then you only have about three more years left where you might see some kind of impact and a chance of moving the needle on some of those SDG goals. So that there you have 10 years right there. So I think there's a sense of urgency to, to work on this, to get this done, to bring as many people together uh, as possible. And um, that's pretty much how I spend my days. Sounds like a, a lot. It's a lot of work, a lot of good work. Given that we have 10 years or less, I mean, how, how are you making this happen? I mean, how are you working with people? Well, the good thing is I work in the United Nations, so, but by default, we can use our convening power to make sure the right people come to the table. And when I say the right people, I mean all people. So the AI experts themselves would say that AI as a technology is too important to leave to the experts themselves. Uh, you know, what we're trying to do is bring together all the United Nations agencies, uh, civil society, uh, industry, academia, governments, uh, students, artists, athletes, and you know, men, women from all parts of the world. And you know, our belief is that all these people should have a, a say in charting a beneficial course for AI in, in the near future or near to, to long future. And um, one of the ways we've been doing that is uh, we, we organized the AI for Good Global Summit. Um, it happens once a year in, in Geneva and it brings together several thousand people. And um, what we wanted to see was that there's, you know, AI is a bit, yeah, it's a bit of a buzzword, I and mean, you have a, a lot of AI events. Uh, some are of a trade show variety, some are very industry focused, or some are focused on specific regions. Um, but we really wanted to use the convening power of the UN to bring all these people together to identify practical applications of AI, to advance the sustainable development goals, and more importantly, to scale those solutions for, for uh, global impact. So it's not, not enough to just identify the use cases, but once you've identified them, how can you 
you know, deploy them across 50 plus African countries and all the challenges that that entails. Uh, that, that's a big challenge. So well, one thing is the technical side, but the, the, the context is equally important, if not more important. And I think that's what, what we can do as a AI for good platform. I want to come back to AI for good in just a moment, but can we back up and explain what the sustainable goals are to people who aren't aware of that, first of all? And then second of all, could you also explain what it would look like if we did meet these goals? Describe the, what that world would look like to us. You mentioned, I think there were 10 of them. Uh, if you talk to us, let's imagine it's 2030. How does the world look if we do hit those goals? What does that look like? Well, I think that the challenge is uh, as soon as you've solved one problem, you usually have new problems that come. But that doesn't mean you, you shouldn't try. So right. um, one thing that's interesting is we, we have a lot of people who come to the AI summit and, you know, the summit's called AI for Good. And they're always like discussing, well, what is good? Well, what, what does that mean? So, um, you know, for, for some groups of people, it might mean one thing for, other, uh, for, for one company, it might mean another thing. And we actually had the, the chairman of Siemens uh, do a very good keynote last year. And he, he was talking about the fact that, you know, a great deal of the AI talent this year is basically going to big tech companies with, you know, not to be cynical, but with the goal of, you know, maybe uh, selling more ads or, or more targeted ads. Or so, so he was a bit annoyed that a lot of the brain power and a lot of the effort and the, the AI talent is put towards, you know, very, commercial uh, type goals, but also not, not even very sort of ambitious goals. It's, it's more just how can you sell more lawn, cha lawn chairs online through Facebook ads, uh, which is a pity because um, AI is such a high potential technology. And I think these people are extremely smart and, uh, but okay, they're, they're being uh, a large chunk of the, the brain power is being lured there. And uh, he was saying, well, we, we should be using this brain power and this talent to, to solve big challenges. So how, how can we clean air? How can we clean our water? How can we have sustainable energy? How can we provide a better education? And, um, but unfortunately, not a lot of the talent is focusing their, their efforts on that. And then, then at one point he said, um, so what do we work on? How do we know what's good? You know, and he asked that question to the audience. And the answer was, well, we know what's good. And he put up a, on a giant screen, the 17 sustainable development goals. And, and he was like, as long as we follow this framework, then we don't need to spend the, the first 500 hours trying to decide what's good. We use this as a framework. It's been agreed upon by close to 200 countries. Um, it touches you know, basically all important uh, areas of society. So life on land, life on water, education, equality, uh, trust, fairness, peace, uh, infrastructure, education, healthcare. So all of those, uh, it, it's actually a very good framework. And I have quite a lot of friends who work in business as well. And they, they, they come up to me and they're like, oh, Fred, you know, thanks for creating the SDGs. And I'm like, well, first of all, I didn't create them. <laughs> this is something that's been uh, worked on by thousands of people. And before the, the SDGs, you have the Millennium Goals. So, so this is sort of an evolution of the Millennium Goals you know, to take us to 2030. And I'm sure when we get to 2030, we, we might have the, the 2050 goals or something. Um, so, but they basically told me, thanks, you know, because before the SDGs, when we had to create a kind of corporate social responsibility strategy, you know, we'd have to hire a consultant and, and sort of map out what we're doing to key areas. And it was like a, a big process, it was expensive. And now they just map themselves to the SDGs. So whether they're doing like an annual report or a financial report or a corporate strategy, it's a very good framework for aligning 
you, you know, what you're going to do to these goals without having to overthink or rethink or reinvent the wheel. Um, so in that sense, I think people find it very useful uh, as a framework for uh, decision-making and problem-solving and prioritizing. And, um, and for sure, it doesn't address everything. I mean, in each goal, you have a, a set of targets and you, you, know, you could probably drill down and down for, for, for days or years. Uh, but as a starting point, I, I think it's a very good and practical framework to, to organize yourself around. Very good. Well, I think you're doing great work, but it's, always, it's also overwhelming, right? I think about like, how would I help tackle climate change? How can I move the needle for that? And at least one of the things that I've learned is that small changes add up, right? In the aggregate, if we all do stuff, it makes it makes it actually makes a difference. It moves that needle. You know, t talking about what the world will be like in 2030 and how do we get there and like why AI? I mean, what's what's kind of the the gap we're facing today and how do we think AI is going to actually help us bridge some of that gap? Yeah, I think the 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 gap is probably the biggest thing. So. If you look at the evolution of the summit, you have the first year, I mean, this was about four years ago, AI was a relatively, not, not a new term, but all of a sudden it became a buzzword. It was in the media, you, you had a lot of pictures of Terminators, uh, you know, in, in news blogs and dystopian scenarios at the end of the world, and, um, you know, it's going to steal all our jobs. So that, that was very much of a narrative that, as, as a new topic. And uh, we saw in the second, second summit that the discussion kind of matured a bit. So it was good we had that first spark, you know, it was needed. And the discussion started to mature a bit. And then it was more about, okay, how do we handle this? You know, what are the risks, uh, the, the cybersecurity risks, uh, what's the impact on labor, how do we organize ourselves, and more of a mature discussion. Uh, but we saw last year, it was really about, um, you know, identifying practical solutions. So if you look at the first summit as a spark, the second summit as a bit of a more mature discussion, last summer was really about identifying solutions and um, not only identifying them but scaling them so what we've seen through three years of summits and presentations exhibits and demos is there's no shortage of you know ai for good applications use court cases uh, so whether it's uh, using a mobile phone to detect skin cancer with your camera phone or diabetes through you know taking an image of your eye or using uh, machine learning to identify tumors on x-rays or um, to identify deep fakes or uh, to provide, you know, uh, nice tools or applications for disabled persons. I mean, so many use cases. Um, but the challenge is a lot of these use cases or, or pilots or apps, they've been developed in a kind of a lab setting or maybe in Silicon Valley or in a nice university in Europe. And how do you take those solutions and actually scale them properly um, you know, globally to, to those who need it the most, the developing countries. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very different thing to try and roll something out in Africa where electricity is an issue, uh, basic things like solar power or making something waterproof or tamper-proof and, and um, all these basics where, you know, a professor in a lab wouldn't think of, uh, that that context becomes really important if you want to scale something properly and, and actually make it available to millions of people who need it. So at the end of the, the last summit, the, the scaling issue really became the, the, the topic of the day. So we went from, you know, the spark to maturity to identifying solutions, and now it's scaling solutions. 
And one thing that emerged was a, a need for an AI commons. So if you think of open AI and open data uh, resources as a common and shared resource, um, you know, taking the word commons from, from the old days where you had the commons grounds where people could help themselves to water or, or different things. So you, you think of uh, AI and data as an open and shared resource. How can you enable problem, uh, problem solving at scale with the open AI and data resources that are available? And it, it sounds, it's actually harder than it, it sounds because there's more data available than ever before. I mean, it's multiplying exponentially and there's more open data available than ever before. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's more problem solving and collaboration happening. Um, just because that data is available, it, 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 it just doesn't automatically lend itself to using AI for good and, and to create um, all, all types of projects and problem solving. So what, what we came up with was the idea of the AI commons. And if you look at it in different layers, um, the, the idea behind it is that AI for good problem solving should be as easy as, as ordering an Uber in the sense that you're matching a, an AI innovator with someone who has a problem and that matchmaking capability should happen automatically enable for, for, for it to scale. So if you imagine you have, I, I don't know, a, a scientist in Silicon Valley who has like cutting edge technology, and then there's a mayor of a town in, in Vietnam who has problems X, Y, Z. They're, they're not gonna meet, they, they don't know each other, they'll never know each other, right? But if you had a kind of platform where you could connect AI innovators with problem solvers, and in order for that to happen, you need a, basically a, a problem statement so they, they can speak the same language. And as we know, AI works very well in sort of well-defined narrow confines or, or, or settings, but it doesn't work. I mean, you can't just have a, a mayor saying, I have a traffic problem and then hope that a scientist will turn up. So creating a, a problem, an AI for good problem statement, which would be, I guess, kind of some, somewhat standardized, is probably the most important part where if you're gonna connect a, an innovator with a problem solver, we, we need to create that kind of translation mechanism, right? And then the next step would be the intake me mechanism. So let's say you've made this Uber match, right? Um, the, you would need an intake mechanism. So how can you intake that problem statement into a kind of sandbox environment where people, where there's open data, there's open data sets, uh, open algorithms and compute power and storage and then there's a sandbox environment where people can actually play with the, with, with the data, with the algorithms, do testing, benchmarking, and you know, training and, and, and fine tuning. So yeah, you, you basically have the innovator problem solver, they speak the same language with a problem statement, intake mechanism into a distributed decentralized kind of sandbox where you would have algorithms and open data. And then there you, that's where the machine or the magic happens, where, where they would find solutions. And then through that, you would have a basically a community, a community of best practice. You would have things at work. Uh, you would maybe be able to benchmark these solutions. And at the end of the day, that's sort of the conditions that you would need to scale AI for your problem solving uh, globally. Um, until you have that kind of mechanism in, in, in place, it's just going to be people in labs inventing apps and solutions, maybe startups commercializing things, but you're not going to have that scaling potential that everyone talks about at the summit. It, it seems right now that a lot of people are afraid of AI 
uh, for the obvious reasons, taking our jobs, potentially people are afraid that the, the robots are going to rise up and kill them, things like that. But what it sounds like what you're doing here is you're democratizing artificial intelligence. You're bringing it to more and more people. So could you paint a picture for us in terms of if we go from a situation where there are haves and have nots right now with AI and other technologies, as the technology becomes more centralized in terms of it gets to more and more people, what, what might the world look like then as more and more people have access to both AI and other kinds of technologies? I think you're going to see a lot, a lot of innovation um, coming out of those areas where uh, potentially they'll be leapfrogging technology in different ways. So. Um, as bad as it sounds, not having a, a big legacy of technology or history, you know, many, many years of uh, business and infrastructure and things that are set in stone can be an advantage sometimes when, when you're trying to, to, to leapfrog. So, for example, if you look at East Africa, they're leading the, the way for digital payments, for example, because out of necessity. And they just leapfrog probably 30 years of development that the rest of the world is catching up with. So maybe you could see something similar when it comes to AI and AI development and business models and applications. But I think the risk also would be that in doing so, a lot of things might drop along the, the side, like, uh, like data privacy, uh, re respecting uh, pe people's rights. And uh, yeah, so, so there's a lot to, lot to figure out there where the, the opportunity is there, um, but at the same time, people do need to make a living and um, the way it might develop very, very quickly without any safeguards in place. And those safeguards, I don't wanna say the, the luxury of the, the Western world or, or people who come to the summit and have the time to think about these things, but at the end of the day, if people need to use uh, AI and like IoT and big data to you know, help improve their, their agriculture or their farming or, or ride sharing or the way people move around the city, um, I, I think a lot of these things will, will develop very quickly, and but not necessarily maybe in the best direction or that that's beneficial for, for all. And, and that, that could be part of risk. So, so, so on the one hand, I see a lot of opportunity there, but I also see that there is sort of a lot of guidance that's going to be needed to, to make sure you know, it goes down the right path. Well, I, I would agree, right? It's a balance, right? We have to always mm -hmm. balance these things out. And I really like your you know, leapfrogging because you look at, you know, some of the African countries and some of the Asian countries, they grew up without landlines, they grew up without credit cards, they never had that infrastructure. And so it was easier for them to leapfrog, right? They weren't trying to kind of displace something that they were all used to using, they were making a huge jump. And I think you actually make a really good point in that there are some problems that even though they're local, actually are experienced by a lot of the world. Natural disasters, for example, right? Mm -hmm. um, they may be diff different forms, but I don't know any place in the world that's safe from natural disasters. Food production, food safety, and I think these different perspectives, like you're talking about, can actually create some novel solutions for, for the world. I mean, you talk about leapfrogging. Um, it'd be amazing to see some of these countries that you know people might say are, okay, they're underserved or third world, but because they don't have the same, I'll call it blinders on that we might have, can actually come up with a more innovative solution. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, Fred, then, where do you think some of the next great ideas might come from? I, I think uh, Africa, to be honest. Um, I mean, from what I saw from the, the, that event in Cape Town and just, you know, out of necessity, you, you see uh, what's in necessity is a mother of invention. And, and there, I, I think, 
you, you'll see amazing things coming out of there. Um, yeah, at least I like to be optimistic about that. And again, I don't think it would be AI alone. I mean, it's always a combination of technologies. So, um, you know, if you look in the context of agriculture, it's, it's a combination of IoT sensors, which would be combined with uh, telecommunication networks, which would be combined with uh, big data, and then the, you know, AI powered sort of analytics, which would be used to maybe optimize farming and, you know, water use, and then maybe combined with satellite imagery to map deforestation. And I think all these things could combine have huge, huge potential. And uh, that's actually one of the dream projects uh, coming out of the, the summit that, that was proposed by uh, Stuart Russell um, uh, a couple of years now. And that's also taking shape in the AI Commons now. It's what, what they call Project Zero, which is imagine if you, I mean, not imagine, I mean, we, we know that the earth is photographed every day thousands of times. I mean, I think it's something like three terabytes of images are, of the earth are produced every day and different types of images, whether it's, you know, high resolution photos, that's only for government agencies, lower res that is available commercially, but also infrared imaging and all, all types of different forms of imaging. If all of that were made available as a kind of public resource, and then you combine that with the big data um, and AI uh, processing power, and analytics, and then you could basically have a kind of Google Earth, that, a much more advanced Google Earth, where you, you see the Earth changing in real time. Imagine what kind of problem solving and analytics you, you could do with that. I mean, you could literally see deforestation as it's happening, um, you, you know, uh, or for, for disaster prevention or uh, for civil unrest, if there's, uh, you know, refugee movements or all, all types of things. And then if you open up that up to, you know, anyone who has a creative problem-solving mind, you, who knows what, what kind of correlations and problems and things people would find with, with availability to, to that amount of data. So, so that's um, and very much in the spirit of the AI commons, because that would be the ultimate common resource. And it's a project that they're trying to get going in the, uh, it, it's called the Global Initiative for AI and Data Commons. So that's something that came out of the summit as well. Uh, you'll definitely be hearing more about it as well. But also for it to work, uh, you need massive collaboration, you know, breaking down a lot of traditional barriers. I mean, you need uh, satellite companies to, to cooperate, you need governments to cooperate, you need universities, you need data scientists, you need all types of things. And you're, you're looking at a billion dollar project, basically. Um, but also a billion dollars is not a lot of money compared to things that are being spent on these days. Yeah, so, so yeah, that's why you need a, a lot of strategic engagements like you're doing, Fred. <laughs> yeah. Well, well so, yeah. speaking of creative minds there for a moment, um, are you seeing anything uh, that's exciting too on the, on the art realm when it comes to AI and technology, new ways that the people, especially young people, are, are using artificial intelligence uh, artistically? Yeah, so that was one of the nice surprises of last year's summit is um, we, we invited a few artists to basically come and showcase what, how they're using AI to push the limits of their creativity and, and human performance. And we didn't think much of it at the time, um, apart from the fact that it's a fascinating topic. Um, but we presented this at different points during the summit. And, you know, our participants were amazed because I think, first of all, that they had no idea. They were really blown away because these were world-class artists. And, but more importantly, it also changed the narrative where it was, you know, the, the discussion was it turned to a point where it was more along, you know, what does it mean to be human? Um, what is intelligence? What do we want? And if we don't know what we want, how do we have any chance of moving the needle left or right? 
and it, it took the discussion really back down to a human level. And I think it also eliminated a lot of the fear factor where if you can see an artist like flourishing because of, of this technology, then all of a sudden it's not the killer robot that's trying to ruin everything, you know, it, yeah. it, it's actually, and um, it, it was, we had a couple of uh, people who showed up. So, so one was uh, an artist called uh, Harry Reaps One, and he basically holds the, the world record as the best, fastest beatboxer in the world. I mean, it's phenomenal what he can do. And he has the most powerful diaphragm in the, in the world, and he needs that to be able to beatbox. And he's basically working, he, he, he has many projects, but one of his projects is he basically created an AI version of his, his beatboxing voice. And then he would um, basically riff off, off his virtual version. So he, he would throw something at it, and then his virtual AI-powered beatbox would throw something back, and then he'd throw something back. And the next thing you know, there's this completely unpredictable kind of jam session happening between him and a virtual version of himself. And uh, the, the way he explained it was that what came out of it, first of all, surprised him, and then it made him think differently creatively, but also pushed his limits as, as a performer, because all of a sudden he's, he has to kind of outdo him, his virtual <laughs> self. And when he demoed this, I mean, people were amazed. And uh, there was another person we brought, which was uh, a world famous drummer. So I happen to be a drummer as well. So I kind of used my hobby to pull someone in. And uh, he did a great talk because, I mean, basically he was saying, you know, oh, everyone's scared of job replacement and AI taking their jobs. And he was like, look, I, I was job replaced 30 years ago with the drum machine. You know, I mean, the drum machine was invented in the early 80s and it literally put drummers out of work, or at least drummers who didn't adapt, it put them out of work very quickly. And he did this great talk where he looked at the history of drumming, how it evolved, and then the drum machine came, and how it just disrupted everything. And at first he, he was frustrated because he was trying to drum as fast as the drum machine, but at one point it's humanly impossible because you know, a drum machine can have 200 arms and it can go 400 BPM and it never gets tired. So uh, uh, he realized that was an exercise in frustration, but then instead of um, being frustrated or giving up or throwing down his sticks, he said, well, how can I use this to, you know, push myself creatively and, and also from a performance aspect. So he basically started reverse engineering uh, electronic music and in doing so became a very technically proficient drummer because he still had to keep up with the machines. But also he had to create the illusion of um, a drum machine playing multiple loops and samples, but with only two arms and legs. And that completely reshaped him as a drummer and made him one of the most in-demand session drummers of all time. And now he, he created a whole genre out of it. So it, his whole message was, you know, don't fear the technology. Um, you know, you, you use it to push your, your own limits of creativity and, and performance. And um, basically, uh, at the core, if you strip down everything that can be done by a machine, his opinion was that what's, what's left is the human, our ability to improvise. So everything else can be turned into ones and zeros, but he called it the space between one and zero is where the humanity of the art lays. And our ability to improvise, that, that's where, you know, we, we, I don't say we're gonna win, it's not a battle with AI, but that, that's where we should put our efforts and as artists and as people. And I think also, you know, it doesn't matter if you're, you don't have to be an artist or a drummer, but, as things evolve, our ability to improvise as humans, whether it's you being job replaced or you have to retrain or rethink or rethink your business, 
that improvisation factor is, I think, something we can count on, not only count on, but like leverage, because that's our, our strength. Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's, that's awesome. I, uh, I like that we live in the space between zero and one. But you know, this is like my big thing in life. I believe it's art plus sustainability plus technology, right? Sustainability is the goal. Technology is a tool to help accelerate realizing that goal. But none of that's going to really be effective unless we can influence people, help them you know, modify their behavior. And art's a great influencer for that. And speaking of which, if people want to get involved, to get their organizations involved with AI for good or other ways they might be able to help the ITU or the UN in general, what's a good way of doing that? I would say get, get critical, uh, get in touch. Um, and uh, we, we have our, our website, obviously, it's uh, aiforgood.itu.int. And uh, on there, there's uh, you know, many different uh, calls. You know, so we have a call for startups, a call for uh, AI experts. We have a call for artists. We have a call for demos. And we have a call for women in AI as well. So you should be able to fit in one of those buckets. Um, but also what, what's interesting now with you know, COVID-19, everyone working from home, at one point, we were scratching our heads. Uh, I mean, when the news first hit, we were very quick to move the summit to September. We were like, you know, within a day almost. We, we wanted to secure a physical space. But obviously, as time goes on, we realized that, okay, there's probably not going to be much appetite for international travel in September, not much budget for events. And, you know, even if we could do something locally, it kind of defeats the purpose of the Global Summit, which was to get, you know, 100 plus countries flying to Geneva. And then we said, okay, well, let's scrap that. Let's do a virtual event in September. And then we thought, well, you know, why limit ourselves to five days in December? I mean, the, the whole point of going digital is you free yourself of the constraints of time, space, location, time zone. And it would be kind of silly to put all your efforts and kill yourselves trying to organize everyone around these days in September. And then you're not leveraging the, the opportunity of going digital. So what we've done now is basically, and we're learning as we go, um, but basically we're, the summit's gone digital all year. Uh, we're, you know, what would have been a five day program, we stretched uh, into weekly sessions, uh, but we're also adding more sessions, uh, also trying to program specifically for different time zones. Uh, so, so people don't have to wake up at 3 a.m. to catch one of our sessions. But at the end of the day, it's all about scaling and, and helping us to do our, our mission better. So we've always wanted to be the most you know, global, neutral, diverse, and inclusive AI for good platform. And going digital has, is going to help us to achieve that mission. So we, we've, we've done about five virtual sessions now. And during those five sessions, we basically reached as many people as we did as the entire summit last year. And that was just with five virtual sessions. And we, we're just getting started. So we estimate by the end of the year, we'll probably reach 50,000 people if we keep this pace going and more and that's people who can't fly to geneva i mean our last uh, webinar we had people from uh, senegal bangladesh nepal saying thank you we're so happy to join and asking questions and that's what the summit was all all about was just really offering up the platform to everyone there's no ticket price there's no fee there's no it's yeah so you, you know i think uh maybe it's been a blessing in disguise uh in the sense that once we get through all of this I really doubt we'll go back to the old way or the old format. And why would we? I mean, I think we still want to gather in Geneva and that's nice and, and we'll meet and shake hands and that human factor is super important. But why limit it to five days when we could do it all year? And, and that's very much in line with uh, scaling AI for good. Well, we also have to scale our own summit and, and how we do things. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a very good instance of, of adaption and innovation. Well, we're uh, at the end of our show. So thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate your time. And this is, this is wonderful. Thank you for your thank insights. You, Fred. Well, thanks so much, Michael and Neil. And uh, yeah, I look forward to the day we can meet again in person. Well, I've never met you, Michael, in person, but Neil I've seen many times. And I'm sure that day, will, that day will come as well. And maybe in Geneva, who knows? Yes. Well, thank you so much. Hey, if you like today's show, please remember to hit the like button and leave a comment. If you've been enjoying the Changing the Story podcast series, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you.